I would like to teach tonight if you don't mind. <laughs> That's what Jesus did mostly, you know. Most of the time he taught. He preached somewhat, but he, te- he taught mostly, and he did even more than healing. More than miracles, he did teaching, teaching the kingdom of God. And I'm teaching you from the book of John, chapter 5. And for those who are ardent students, let me tell you that John was the only of the 12 disciples that did not die as a martyr. John lived to be a very old man, well into his 90s. And he died on an isle called Patmos, as a, like an incarceration. John and his brother came from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a town that is on the river coming, Jordan coming down into uh, into the Sea of Galilee, and they ended up living in Capernaum, or Capernaum as you might call it, but him and his brother were called the sons of thunder. He was only 18 when he met Jesus. So from his 18th year, right up till his 97, whatever it was when he died, was a long journey for him. Now, just for you interested that are students, the book of Mark was the very first gospel to be circulated and used as widely as it was. So much so that 224 verses of the book of Mark are exactly reproduced in the book of Matthew. And 187 are produced in the book of Luke. It was that accurate net as a reference point. But John used none of those. John wrote his book way late in his life. And he wrote it not to be a historical account or a, hist- or a book of reference, but a s- salvation message, a message of the whole truth. He sat down and thought, where shall I begin? In the beginning. That's how he began his book, in the beginning. In the book of John. He is the only one, listen to me carefully now, who actually tabulates and describes the only two miracles that are described in Jerusalem. He did many miracles, but only two were actually referred to, and John did both of them. In the book of John, chapter 5, verse 1, is when we read about one of them, and that's what I want to teach tonight, if you will stay with me. John, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Once again, from Galilee to Jerusalem would take them at least a week. Adults would walk in a week. Now time, and there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate is today known as the Lion Gate, and I haven't got time to tell you why. But it's just slightly north of the temple and very close to the Pool of Bethesda. It is called the Sheep Gate and was until 90 years ago, for all these thousands of years, called the Sheep Gate because the Bedouin, the sheep herders, bring their sheep to that gate to sell. And it was ideal because that's the ideal place to go to get purified at the northern pool and also to go to the temple with your sheep. And that's what, why it's called the Sheep Gate. Now, in Jerusalem, and if you'll only consider coming with me to Jerusalem in December, you'll enjoy all this the more. There are three valleys in Jerusalem. If you look from the north to Jerusalem from the sky, you will see three lines coming together called valleys and joining at the bottom Look, making an exact replica of the Jewish alphabet letter, the 22nd letter called Shin. Shin is the letter of God. And God said he'd put his name and stamp on the city of Jerusalem, and he did. The very first valley is called the Kidron. The Kidron separates the Mount of Olives from the main peninsula. The main peninsula has been used for thousands and thousands of years by different, including the 
Canaanites and the different kinds of uh, tribes over the years, Jebusites, and <clears throat> before, way back was Melchizedek lived there. And it is a peninsula that goes on different heights, an island going up quite high, and the lower part <clears throat> is where deep inside what made it so desirable was the Gihon Springs. In, you should know all this because there's so much of it in the Bible, so much. And inside the, inside the mountain, the spring would, jump, would come out and it would bubble and it would flow. And it was Hezekiah, you heard of him? Who was a, getting nervous of the tech that, that he assigned his workers and his builders to go down in the mountain and redirect that Gion Springs so it would not be tapped in by the enemies and keep it inside the mountain where they could safely guard it and it would spill out into the bottom pool, the very southern point known as Salome. Accidentally, in 2008, some sewage workers accidentally stumbled onto the Pool of Siloam. Until then, it had been lost, and they discovered it and uncovered it in 2008. That's the southern pool. It's called a mikvah, and a mikvah is where you cleanse. It's a pool that has to be from the ground, un- un- unpure, it has to be purely, completely pure and unpolluted, and it mustn't bubble, it must be very calm. The northern pool that was the most used or known before Siloam was Bethesda, right? Bethesda, sorry, Bethesda, way up there. It's an Aramaic word, and I'm going to read about it now. It's near the Sheep Gate. It's literally yards from the Sheep Gate, and this is where we headed today in the book of John chapter 5, and I know you're all excited. I'm trying to describe this to you so you can actually see it in your head, what's going on. John chapter 5, and now there is in Jerusalem in the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Think of a big gazebo. That's what they call a colonnade. And there are five of these gazebos around these two pools. They're two because the pool bubbles one side and must spill over to the calm one for purification. Here a great number. Do you hear that? A great number, which means a lot of people. Of disabled people used to lie. The blind the lame, the paralyzed. A lot of sick people around this pool of Bethesda. One who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and learned, which means someone told him, that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? What a strange question. Uh, no, I'm just sitting here because I've got nothing else to do for 38 years. I'm just, I love the, I love the setting. <laughs> do you want to get well? This is what the man replies. Sir, the invalid said, I have no one to help me into the pool where the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was Sabbath. And I'm going to stop for a moment and explain to you, because I know you Gentiles have no clue what Shabbat means. They mock and make fun of me when I take tours in Israel because we get in an elevator on a Shabbat and you, don't, you can press your button all you want. It's not going anywhere. It's going to stop at every floor. 
And they say, well, how does that work to press a button? It's not, it's not work. When there's a, there are scriptures about sparks and fires and things but on Shabbat day. But the real issue is it's psychological. We want to rest completely. We honor. It's not just a day of rest. It's a holy day to God. We separate it as a day of rest and holy to God. And it's very programmed. And, and everything the Pharisees do, everything the, the Orthodox Jews is always extreme. They are very extreme in everything they do. Jesus, remember Jesus said, you forsake the law for your tradition. Remember him saying that? Then? Do you know what his traditions are? And I know you mostly won't understand what that is. Jewish traditions are handed down verbally from very famous rabbi to very famous rabbi and to the people. So every once in a while, a rabbi will merge as a very prominent spiritual, spiritual man that's regarded as a father like a pope. And he will hand down all these traditions. And it was put in book form in the year 200 AD called the Mishnah. So if you hear anyone mention the Mishnah, that's what it is. So they would cling to traditions. For example, if you go to Israel now and you've been there, uh, you will know, Katie, that when you go in the mornings, there's no meat whatsoever. Only fish and milk products. At nighttime, all the meat's there, but no milk products. Because of one single rabbi that interpreted one single scripture, and he said, the scripture says, it's cruel to boil a calf in its mother's milk. And from that came a tradition not to mix the two in a, in a meal. And so it's become completely acceptable throughout the whole nation because of one tradition. And that's how that religion got so, so thick. In Jerusalem, there are several neighborhoods together, which are known as the Orthodox neighborhood. Everyone knows about those neighborhoods. I usually take my groups and drive them through it to show them. You will see everyone, men, women, children, all dressed in black from head to toe. That's how they dress. That's the Orthodox Jews. And they will marry their kids off as fast as possible. When they turn 18, they get married. They're already committed before they even grow up who they're going to get married to. We, have, we actually pay a, a person who finds a marriage partner, matchmaker they're called, because they study it, they are professionals, and it's a long story. In fact, you don't hear about Jews getting divorced. They have very, what we do is we fall in lust, get married, and then we try to fit everything together. What the Jews do is they fit it together first. And then you learn to love someone. You, learn to, you lust them, marry them, and try to learn to love them. And just all the things you, don't, you have nothing in common with. It's not the way of the Jews. Anyway, so stay with me. I'm, it's, I'm not agreeing with you. I'm just telling you how it is. I, 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 everyone's, walk, everyone's journey is different, and I, I'm only just telling what they believe. But this is what I'm trying to tell you how severe it is. If you go through on a Saturday, and it's public roads, go through their neighborhood on a Saturday, they will stone your vehicle, no matter who you are, because they take the law so very seriously. They're very devoted, and they want to get back. They, they've, extreme, they've got extreme everything about God's laws. And Jesus had to deal with these Pharisees all the time. So he does these two miracles that are named in John, one in the north at this pool of Bethesda on a Shabbat. It was not a problem to heal on the Sabbath, but he tells him, pick up your mat. Uh, you couldn't just let him leave that dirty mat there. You had to take the mat with you. Pick up your mat, let's go. And so he's walking on a Shabbat with, his, with, this, with this mat. And of course, the Pharisees see him, goes to the temple, because Jesus doesn't preach the gospel to him. He didn't even tell him about the kingdom. He didn't tell him about what is here, good news. No good news. 
And so he picked up your mat and walked. At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which it took place was Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The Lord forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who, do, who is this fellow? And told you to pick up your and walk. The man who healed me had, had no idea. He just got healed. He was not at all. Didn't meet him. So why would Jesus walk into a pool with a bunch of sick people, heal only one person, and not even preach the good news to him? What? So he went away and, and he was in the crowd there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple. See, you're well again. Stop sinning. Stop sinning? He's been an invalid for 38 years. What kind of sin could be, he be doing? Oh, it's on his iPhone, huh? Is that what it is? There's something worse may happen to you, which means he's forsaken the Lord. That's the, it's the relationship. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now he discovered who it was. So because Jesus was doing these things on a Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, hear this. Jesus said to them, this is for you today, my father is always working. That young fellow sang a song about God being at work. He's always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Let me get into your spirit today. Jesus said, my father is always working. Life dishes you so much stuff. And you first feel like you've forsaken. God doesn't care. It's all trouble. But God is working. He's not even telling you what he's doing. He's working. And he's working again with this. When Jesus walks into a place with a bunch of sick people and purposely walks in there seeing all these sick people and hears, oh, this guy's lame. Do you want to get well? Why would he ask him that? Because there has to be a connection. Jesus cannot heal you if you don't want to be healed. So he goes to his own hometown, and the word of God says he could do nothing because of their unbelief. The powerful son of God who could do anything was limited because of their unbelief. So he has to connect with the man. Do you want to get well? He had to have that faith enough, even a tiny molecule of faith, so he could release that into him. Do you understand? That was the connection. The woman that would touch the hem of his garment, she said, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. Jesus said to her, your faith healed you. The connection she needed helped to connect, but it was her faith actually that healed. She could have got it there. She had another connection, just even just spiritually or scripture, she could have connected. She needed to connect to the Lord. Now stay with me now. So this miracle took place in the northern part of Jerusalem on this, this peninsula at the Pool of Bethesda. The other miracle named, the only other one named and described was in the southern part at the Pool of Siloam. And what happened there was Jesus meets a man who's blind from birth. You've heard the story. How do you know someone's blind from birth? Is there a sign? I've been blind all my life. How do you know? They're just staring out in the space. No. Most people that are blind from birth have such receded eye sockets, you don't even see an eyeball if there is one. Have you ever seen that? When someone's blind, there's nothing there. There's no eyes to look at. I've seen it several times. And I'm thinking, Jesus walks by and looks, ah, blind from birth. And so he looks at some, let me think now. 
I was at creation at the, with the, let us make man in our image and we took ah, dust, dust and he got some dust and he that spit loose, I need something wet okay, and he spits into it and he rolls it and he makes an eye and he pops it in there and the, he can't see too well he says go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam once again another holy pool the northern pool, the southern pool and this also happened on a Sabbath Two significant miracles, north and south, pool both, pool mikvahs, and both on a Shabbat. What in the world were you doing? Once again, he didn't preach that man either. He didn't tell him about salvation. Didn't. Whole argument pursues about his parents saying that he wasn't blind from birth. Yes, he was. He's my son. And the whole lot of stuff going on about that all the time. And I wondered for so long, why would you do that, Lord? And I've come to find out that God's always working. You just don't know what he's doing. But he's got a much bigger plan in motion. And I'm going to explain to you what he was doing if you want me to tell you. It is in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6, 7, and 8, you'll find that King David arrives at Jerusalem at this big peninsula, this island, this Jerusalem, and he looks up at the walls of the city and the Jebusites were the last of the Philistines to overcome. And he looked up with his army and they shouted down at him. As you'll see in 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, he says, You will not take this city, they shouted at him. Even a blind man and a lame man will keep you out. So when the son of David came to the city, no lame man and no blind man would keep him out of the city both physically or spiritually. Jesus did a lot of things that are very important spiritually. You have said on numerous occasions, it feels like we've come a whole circle. There are things God's doing in your life that you notice strange, significant things. It doesn't make any sense, but you know there's some meaning to it. You just don't know what it is. You are so very important to God, and let me explain to you why, how it actually works in the ecology of the almighty God. He has not just lots of planets, he has thousands upon thousands of galaxies. Thousands that we know of, that, we could, that we've seen through the Hubbard telescope and so on. And he has billions of angelic beings that are powerful, they are immortal, they move through space and time, take on different forms, they are beyond our natural mind of understanding. Men try to create this understanding by making these superheroes and movies of supernatural things, trying to formulate because it's beyond our natural mind. And in his journey, God's journey with one particular angel that he lifted up and gave freedom to, this one, Lucifer, rebelled against him and took his power and all his freedom and used it against God, taking a third, a whole third of the angelic host with him. So God wanting to do a new relationship, had to devise a different plan. This time, for the first time ever, he took his own DNA and he created himself in man. But with so much of him, he had to be extra careful by taking a small planet and devising a carbon house, a perishable, a temporary, a disposable body just to house that DNA of his. He made us in his image. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you see, and there was a dog here today, if that dog has puppies, you know what's coming out of that dog. 
right? But when God said, the Almighty God said, let us make man in our image. Nothing, no animal, no creation was made in his image but us. And his passion for us supersedes anything your brain can comprehend at this time. In God's journey to get you to choose him, he limited the information, not because he wanted to keep you ignorant, but he wanted to keep you unpolluted. So he gave man enough knowledge and power to run the planet, but then he kept away the information of good and evil so it wouldn't become confusing and a complete turmoil. Satan knew how to sow those seeds because he was exposed to all of it to get that in there to confuse man. And of course now a tragedy, rather than cast them out like Satan, he had to come up with a new plan. Because he says, not only are you his creation, you are made with his DNA, you belong to him. You are mine. That's what he said. Are you with me still? So his passion for you is beyond your natural understanding. So he devised a salvation plan, a long-term plan for mankind through Jesus. It is the most amazing story ever told. And Hebrews 2 says, if we shall neglect the salvation, there shall be no mercy. There shall be no help. That's what Hebrews 2 says. How shall we ever escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a free gift because you are that important to God. The angels committed one sin. They rebelled against God and a third of them left and a lake of fire is waiting for them. You've sinned more than once this week. But no lake of fire is waiting for you. You are redeemable and redeemed. As that song says, he would die for you to die for. Are you hearing me? Not one angel was worth it. Not one. Not one angel was worth redeeming or somehow rescuing. But you were to die for. You were that important to God. And if you're that important, you're still that important. And the war that goes on because of your lack of knowledge, because God kept it low, you've got to pursue and run after the knowledge of him to know him. Right? Stay with me. I've got so much I could tell you about that. To know God. He's got to know you too. Do you know that he uses the phrase twice? Go away from me. I don't know you. How could the five virgins not be known by him? How could the, those that cast out devils and heal the sick and prophesy not, he not know them? Because they don't maintain a relationship with him. <laughs> I've got so much, I'm touching on some stuff and I'm hoping some people grab this. In your walk with God, God is so little concerned with your struggles. Doesn't stress him out one bit. You can fall and falter 10 times, 100 times a day. Doesn't matter. Jesus, in fact, Jesus, the son of God, said to Peter, he's top man. You're going to deny me tonight three times. No way, way. For sure, you're going to. But I'm willing to die for you. <laughs> right, good job. I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Why didn't Jesus stop him? Why didn't God prevent you with the struggles you have? All those bad thoughts and things, mistakes you keep making and you're fighting. There's Paul, wretched man that I am. The things that I ought not to do. I sought the Lord three times, but I thought in my flesh. And he said, my grace is enough for you. I'm grateful for your grace, but could you set me free? 
My grace is enough for you. I'll take care of it. I've got you covered. Do you hear what I'm saying? Understand. He's, and he used his words. Uh, Satan was sent to me uh, to buffet me, to keep me humble. That's what he writes. I didn't write it. He wrote that in the word. It's my, no, I didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. So God has to keep you sometimes in check that you may think not too much of yourself because you're redeemed. And he want, your weakness of struggles, don't bother him because he forgives you 70 times 7 and more than that a day. It's the wickedness that God hates. The heart that's wicked. Judas was wicked. That's what Jesus said. He's a devil. How, how did he become a devil? Well, he was so unnoticeably wicked because he was doing all the works that the other 12 were doing, other 11, they were going out in twos and healing and preaching the gospel, that nobody could recognize that he wasn't right. In fact, when he said, one of you will betray me, is it me, is it me? That they, didn't, they could not think, oh, we know, that's, we know about it. We, I've had my suspicion about this Judas a while ago. No, nobody knew. And yet he was hiding that in his heart. He was tasting of all the miraculous and supernatural as close as possible to Jesus, and yet in his heart he wanted not only to get away from Jesus and just reject his ministry, he was willing to, for a mere bit of money, just sell the knowledge of where he is. He didn't care, had no, hardened his heart. He got to the place where he felt no more remorse whatsoever. Understand this, when someone asks me, I'm so afraid that I've blasphemed the Holy Ghost. If you even say that, you've not. Because the day you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, you've really hard as hard, hard heart, don't care, could care less. You've really gone beyond that. Doesn't matter to you whether you have or not, because you don't care. You don't even believe in it. While you're thinking that, the devil wants to accuse you and put guilt and shame on you, you've not done it. Do you understand? The devil wants to take away from that. But you need to know him and get to, get to know him. Learn about him. Get to know the Lord. Seek him that you may know him. Teach me your ways, Moses said, that I may know you. David prayed the same prayer. I want to know you. Get to know him and know who you are, that his grace is more than enough for you. With all your failings and struggles. He doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. How we treat each other. That's very important. God can tell where your heart is just by your behavior to other people. When you're connected to God, and John says, you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother, if you, who you do see. He says it makes it very clear. It's evident. You say you love God, but you're hateful to other people. You've gotten very quiet in this place. Now, getting back to those two miracles. What I'm trying to tell you is Jesus said, my, uh, my father is always working, and so am I. So wherever you are in your life today, please, family, know that God is all about you. He's not doing everything the way you want because he likes you too much. He's such a good parent that he'll do what's right for you more than just keep pleasing you. God wants to protect and to bless you, not please you. Our bad parenting skills create the entitlement generation and now the millennials, they think everything's right and they can do whatever they like because we created that. Good parenting, if you're really a good parent, your kids will hate you. Yeah. I hate you. I can't wait to leave this house. One day when I leave, they all, that's, that's good parenting. <laughs> you laugh, but we Americans are famous for pleasing our kids. And they think it's their right. They think we have to please them. We did that. Not them, we did it. We didn't teach them discipline and the ways to, to fear God and to love God. We didn't. we always appeasing and, and we're so scared to offend them. And even at school, look at the school. They can, they, can, they can cuss at a teacher. 
I want to take a belt and beat the fire of that kid. <laughs> Do you understand? If you don't set those standards, you've got chaos. And we have spiritual chaos in our nation. We do. We have spiritual chaos. Our public schools are a den of destruction. They spend all those hours that we don't with our kids teaching them junk. At the age of nine, you've got to pick what sex you want to be. What? Go look in the mirror, dude. What you got's what you are. I don't want to be a Ford, I want to be a Chevy. I, I'm sorry that I was a Ford. What? I'm not unsympathetic or compassionate. I understand people's struggles, but I'm not going to buy into that nonsense. I'm sorry to tell you. All right. <laughs> I hope I taught you something about God working in your life. God's at work all the time. He's busy. God is busy working in your life. I'm too old now to care whether you like me or not. It's so, I'm not, I'm not needy of people wanting or liking me. I care one passion I'm driven by. It's my love for God and to see his kingdom advance. So I'm driven by that. So everything I say and do is for that. I don't flatter. I don't say nice things to because I want you to like me. I want God to like me because I'm going to see him very soon. And I want to make sure I'm ready to see him and everything's right with me. Do you understand?